Very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Stephen Kelly, Associate Director of Research at the Yale Program on Financial Stability. Stephen, great to have, have you back. How are you doing? Good. Great to be here. February seems like a million years ago. It really was a billion years ago. So Stephen, we're recording July 11th, and we just have had a soft release of the new bank regulations, the bank capital standards. Federal Reserve Barr, Michael Barr, put out a, a speech where he described what the new capital requirements are going to be for the bank. So just in really broad strokes, could you describe what the new capital requirements are for banks and how effective do you think they might be in preventing the next Silicon Valley bank failure? Well, I, I think the important context here is Barr, Vice Chair Barr started this review um, basically, when he came into office, into the vice chair for supervision position in 2022, um, so there is some sort of pre-SVB, pre-March 2023 context to this, um, and I think that comes out at, uh, at a few places in the proposal. Or again, like he said, the the preview of the proposal we have, we sort of have the proposal to propose um, in a in a Michael Barr speech on July 10th. Uh, the biggest one being that. Really, the eight GSIBs, the the eight largest banks, were not, you know, given any special treatment relative to other large banks. So we we sort of talked about 2023 as a crisis of sort of this mid, you know, the sort of the banks below the biggest banks, right? The biggest banks sort of played the the white knight role, the rescue role, particularly J.P. Morgan. Um, they made a large deposit in First Republic to buy it a, a few more weeks. J.P. Morgan ends up buying it. Um, you know, so we've sort of talked about the big banks as being stable and having a stronger, a stronger business model. Uh, but really they were not exempted from this. And I think that fits bars priors of what needed to be done to the banking system, to capital rules, as well as any analysis he did sort of before 2023. Um, so he really mentioned, uh, you know, some, some changes to basically not letting banks use their internal models as much. Um, tightening up stress testing, uh, you know, he wants to tweak the way the GSIB surcharge uh, is calculated. But he he comes out with a number and says basically we're talking about two percentage points of capital increase for the largest banks, uh, which he identifies as a hundred billion dollars in assets and and bigger. So uh, this this was certainly you know I don't know if it's an opening bid and we'll see it get softened and, and watered down, but. Uh, certainly, this was a this was a, a, a strong sort of uh, you know warning shot or opening shot from from Vice Chair Barr, right? And he was talking about the beauty of capital is that how it can absorb losses. And whenever you know someone from the Federal Reserve talks about how beautiful capital is, you know something's been going on uh, in the financial system or, or in the banking system. So there's there's capital that banks hold against losses. So if a loan goes bad or they they lose money. That can absorb the loss rather than the depositors taking the loss or the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation uh, uh, having to pay up. So, and then a GSIB is the globally systemically important bank. So, very, very large banks. Uh, perhaps you can tell us what the sort of threshold is. So, that it's 2% extra capital for the very largest banks, which may mean 100 billion. And what is that up from? And also, is this risk based capital, risk weighted based capital? Uh, as opposed to a total leverage ratio. Yeah, so this is this is risk weighted based capital up from you know the the numbers depend on banks' results in the stress test. So you sort of have you know a minimum capital level of four and a half percent. You'll have a GSIB surcharge if you're a GSIB. You have 
a minimum buffer on top of that of two and a half percent plus uh, basically any results of your stress test that are worse than that. So it depends on the bank, but it could be 13, 14, 15 percent uh, of capital or risk weighted assets. And so this is going to top that off. Uh, another piece is there are uh, non-risk weighted ratios. Basically, this is meant to be a backstop. So you know, risk weights are are man-made. Basically, we we decide how to risk weight assets. Uh, you know, uh, w- you can see the mistakes we've made in the past, right? A triple A subprime MBS seems like something you should rate, you know, pretty highly as triple A. Uh, but sometimes we get it wrong. So we have these backup capital ratios to say, like, okay, let's just look at all the assets. Let's not weight them at all. And let's just say, how much capital do you have against all your assets? Um, sometimes in the case of what's called the supplementary leverage ratio or the enhanced supplementary leverage ratio, in the case of the biggest banks, we say, let's let's include even your, your off-balance sheet assets. So your derivative exposures and things like things you may, you know, that were previously hidden off balance sheet. Let's get all that into one calculation and look at your capital against it. And one particularly notable thing from Barr's speech was that um, he is not going to amend this ESLR for the biggest banks. And there was a big expectation that that there was going to be sort sorry, sorry, of Stephen. So uh, I don't know if the E stands for, but SLR supplementary leverage ratio. Yeah, so the E is just enhanced, and that's that's just for the biggest banks. The biggest banks have to hold. So the SLR is three percent capital to assets, all assets, non-risk weighted. Uh, ESLR is five percent uh, for GSIBs. Uh, so they just have they have a higher threshold to meet, and actually their depository has to hold six percent. But uh, at the holding company level, they have to hold five percent, and the the what was expected or what was hoped for I think was that um, in making in doing this calculation the Fed would exclude reserves at the Fed um, because it's sort of goofy to include reserves at the Fed which are infinitely liquid and you know have zero credit risk in some sort of calculation of capital um, and, and the the problem with it is. You know, you could build it into the calculation, but the problem is this number changes a lot when you have a crisis, right? When you do, when the Fed does QE and it shoves trillions and trillions of dollars of reserves into the banking system, banks' leverage goes up, um, even though you know it's the safest asset in the world with literally no liquidity or capital risk. So you don't have to be soft on that ratio. You can raise, you can go from five percent to seven percent or whatever you want to do, but you carve out reserves. And I think that was expected. As part of a, you know, maybe as, as a carrot to the rest of these, the rest of these changes, and, and Barr said he he had no interest in it, and he sort of mentioned like, okay, we'll wait and see if a treasury market breaks again, um, like it did in 2020, uh, when the Fed basically gave an exemption to this rule, um, and he sort of said, all right, well, well, we'll keep watching the treasury market, and if something happens, you know, we'll we'll reconsider, but I'm not going to make any changes. So uh, he really came out tough. And, you know, there's a number of, uh, of things in here that really come out tough. And like I said, you know, it's, it's two percentage points of capital. Um, and, and just, you know, to go back to your sort of definition of capital, Jack, I think it's, it's worth noting, you know, we talk about capital as like uh, it's, it's a way that banks fund themselves, right? So it's, it's available to take losses before the depositors take losses. It's equity funding. You know, it's meant to represent that banks are risky. And that's all true. Um, and, and like you said, Barr, Barr says capital's beautiful. You know, the, he, he really talks about how this is just a different kind of way for banks to fund themselves. It shouldn't be thought of, you know, 
necessarily as, as some sort of a thing other than that. Um, but the, the important thing to remember is, uh, well, a couple of things here. I mean, banks fund, banks create deposits when they make loans, right? And, and when you make a loan overnight, you create a deposit. So if I take my deposit from one bank, uh, if I take my deposit from JP Morgan and bring it over to Citigroup, I've just increased the Citigroup's leverage, right? I mean, I, I gave them more deposits. Um, so if they take it from me, their leverage goes up. Uh, and that's sort of an inconvenient truth for folks who want really high capital levels, because you can think about, oh, you have a crisis in the, the treasury market. You have a crisis in, you know, small businesses during COVID. They need lo- a lot of loans all of a sudden. Well, when you issue those loans, you create the deposit um, on the liability side and your leverage goes up. So it's it's really hard. You can't fund the marginal loan, the marginal intervention with capital. Um, you can raise capital over time and you can retain your earnings and that all builds into your equity. But uh, in the short term, it's important that capital is flexible and capital is just a really scarce resource. So sometimes it just gets mischaracterized as, oh, it's just a different way for banks to fund themselves. But you can't be a bank that's exclusively capital uh, because you have no deposits then. Uh, so it, it gets tricky. The higher and higher you you take the requirements, if you don't build in the flexibility, um, it's harder for banks to be banks when you sort of raise and raise and raise capital requirements. Yes. And so banks create deposits when they make loans. And that is an accurate description of the, the t- technicals of banks. However, <clears throat> banks need capital because they are, they're required to do have capital, either from governments or from uh, depositors who just you know want a little bit of protection, and you know I don't bank I don't think bankers think of oh yeah don't deposits are leaving our bank but it's no problem because we can just make loans like if they make loans to people then those deposits will leave as well and then their capitals get gets even worse right yeah that's that's absolutely true so we're, I mean we're, what we're really talking about here is at the margin, if you want to expand and grow your balance sheet. Certainly, uh, a bank that's bleeding deposits is going to be worried about that and not in a hurry to make more loans. Uh, but it's, it's at the margin, this this ability to intervene and step in the way we want banks to do uh, can be limited by capital rules uh, and leverage rules, which which sort of limit their ability to lever up. So the point just being that cap, you, know, you can write a capital story that sort of works over time, right? So retain some more capital, raise equity. Um, but if you're, if a market breaks today um, and you want Goldman Sachs to, to, you know, put a floor under the market because it can do that faster than the Fed or you want Morgan Stanley to or whomever, uh, it's not going to be able to raise equity by tomorrow, right? It's not, it's not like it can just choose to fund itself overnight with equity. Um, you got to do a capital raise. You got to wait a few quarters to retain some earnings, right? So that's a whole process. Um, and so that's, that's where become, the distinction becomes important. This is not just, you know, a different way to fund yourselves. I mean, the main thing that we rely on banks for is to, is to give us deposit services, um, is to be a place for our money, right? So uh, to think about the funding side as sort of a secondary effect of the lending side is, is I think, not correct. Uh, before anybody wants a loan, they want, you know, a place to, to, to store their checking account. Um, so... And that's what happens when the bank makes a loan, right? They if they write you a mortgage, they they create a checking account for you, put the money in it. So um, it, it, it's sort of the, the sequence of events sort of gets reversed sometimes. All right. So there are two types of 
capital requirements. One is risk-based and the other is non-risk-based. So I think the main one, uh, common equity tier tier one, uh, that's like if you have a fleet of vehicles and the government requires you to buy insurance on vehicles, which actually, you know, in reality, they, they do, or liabilities insurance. If you have, you know, a motorbike that's uh, in disrepair, you're probably going to have, it's a little bit more risky than, let's say, a purely autonomous fleet uh, that never gets in an accident, an, an accident, right? So they say, oh, you, you don't have to hold uh, that much, you know, insurance or capital against your autonomous fleet. But if you're going to ride your motorbike, you're going to have to take a ridiculous amount of insurance and that, that is appropriate. So a, a lot of uh, credit uh, products, banks have to hold an enormous amount of capital against uh, very risky loans uh, because the regulars learned their lesson from 2008. And that, and that makes a lot of sense. However, there are uh, in, in the risk uh, uh, weighted model, the autonomous fleet are the basically the equivalent of risk free stuff like treasuries and agency mortgage backed securities, not private label, but agency mortgage backed securities. And I think I don't know if this is true, but I think that at the time it was accurate that the risk weighting for treasuries was literally zero percent, and for agency mortgage backed securities, I think it was twenty percent, which is quite uh, low. And the last year. We've seen a lot of uh, you know autonomous vehicle accidents. Let's put it that way, because you know interest rates went up from zero percent to five um, percent. Uh, and if you had a ten-year treasury, I don't know what you're down fifteen percent on an agency mortgage-backed security. You're, you're down, uh, you know, in some cases over twenty percent. So what is a quote risk-free security is is not risk-free. Of course, very little credit risk, but there is interest rate risk, as everyone knows. Uh, so the first risk weighting. Uh, did did not uh, require banks to hold a lot of capital, or in the case of treasuries, I think any capital uh, against those assets. But then total leverage is like ignore any risk weighting. We're just looking at the total leverage of the bank, and that's what the, the supplementary leverage ratio is. So they're not raising the supplementary leverage ratio. Uh, they are raising the risk weighting uh, one. But are they changing the definitions of risk weighting? Are they say, hey, actually, maybe these uh, you know autonomous vehicles, maybe you know we're we're, we're seeing pileups on uh, you know uh, the interstate. Maybe it's time to actually require drivers to hold some insurance against this. Are they saying, hey, let's take it to ten percent or thirty percent of capital, or or no? So so not on the autonomous vehicles. They're they're definitely um, you know going at they're having banks sort of reconsider and standardize in some cases how they're accounting for. Uh, you know, their specific assets, their trading assets and things like that, and, and having banks rely less on their own models. So to keep with your analogy, you know, you have a, you have a Ferrari dealership and a, and a Corvette dealership. Uh, previously, the Fed was more willing to let the Corvette dealership say, this is how risky a Corvette is, and the Ferrari dealership say, this is how, how risky a Ferrari is. And Bard wants to come in and, and standardize that where it's, where it's really not modelable, um, or not reliable models anyways. And, you know, the, the idea internationally is let's put a floor under this. So, okay, you can model some of your own risk, but if, if, if the number you come up with falls below uh, this number, you got to do, you got to impose the floor. With respect to the autonomous fleet, we're not seeing any changes and we probably never will see any changes um, to risk weights to treasuries. Uh, you, the system's sort of built around at least the idea that treasuries are safe. So that's part of why the debt ceiling standoff stuff makes us so uncomfortable because it sort of uh, threatens to reveal some truth that, may, that maybe we don't want to acknowledge or, or that the whole system 
is built around not being true. Um, and, and your point about, you know, what we've seen in treasuries over the recent year, recent few years, um, you know, in both directions, it, it is exactly distinct from, from reserves, which have, which have no price or credit risk, right? The price of a reserve of a dollar on deposit at the Fed does not change with interest rates. And that's part of why that really, you know, could easily be carved out from the calculation. Um, some banks have argued that treasury should be too. They said, look, we'll intervene. We'll support the treasury market a lot more if you don't count treasuries and even our non-risk weighted ratios. Um, I mean, you guys are going to pay them back, right? So why, why, why are we even including this in our capital ratio? And Stephen, there was a time when treasury rating was literally zero, uh, in sometime in 2020, did they change it back to it's some it's a low number but not zero anymore? No, no, no. The, so the the risk weight is zero. It it was in 2020. It was exempted from the the non risk weight calculation, the, the SLR. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, basically because the treasury market was going haywire during COVID, so it was exempted for a year. They said treasuries and reserves um, that expired after a year. I think it's reasonable to reconsider reserves because of you know what I've been saying about them, um, but. But some banks have even pushed like, okay, keep treasuries exempt forever too. Um, if you want us to step in, uh, they're credit risk free, right? The Fed's behind them, right? I mean, the Fed's going to step in if the market goes haywire, right? 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 So, um, but you know, you can see the argument, and SVB sort of paints that picture of like you don't want a bank to essentially be a levered up treasury hedge fund, um, not holding any capital against that. That's different than than reserves at the central bank. Got it, and. In retrospect, holding a lot of treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities with very little interest rate hedges, uh, doing so is very risky at a period when interest rates go from zero percent to five percent. But I guess you know it only will be as bad again if interest rates go from five percent to ten percent, which you know, in my personal opinion, doesn't seem super likely. Uh, at least over the next year, what? Uh, do, so they they don't rec- really make any changes on interest rate risk, right? And and yeah, can you speak to how you perceive interest rate risk within the banking system and perhaps what the recent rule changes suggest about how the Federal Reserve sees them? Yeah. So there's really not, um, it, it's not really written into the capital rules to, to talk about interest rate risk. Um, you know, we can talk about hedging and this has really gotten a lot of congressional furor because there's sort of this story about how SVB had some interest rate hedges um, in 2021, and they progressively dropped them over 2022. Uh, and so this has basically been characterized as a bet that interest rates were going to come down. Um, you know, the the SVB was going to be able to cash in on basically some naked interest rate exposure. Um, and of course, that didn't happen, right? Rates went higher and higher. Um, Fed is still going higher, uh, and SVB doesn't exist anymore. So that's, I mean, that's true. It, it, it's, it's also not really to a first approximation uh, what affected SVB, or, nor is it a contrast with any banking competitors. So broadly speaking, hedging interest rate risk in the way we talk about it, like with literal hedges, um, is not a, it's not a description, not really a true description of the banking system. Um, you know, we talk about SVB's hedges in 2021, they hedged 12% of their interest rate risk. Um, that's 88% unhedged. Uh, so, and if you look at the banking system as a whole, 
particularly with respect to swaps, I mean, that's where most of the research has been done uh, because that's the one that leaves banks without liquidity risk. You know, if you, if you put on hedges in the futures market uh, or elsewhere, you can really get pinched in the short term with collateral calls and things like that. Swaps, uh, in theory, you're, you've hedged your liquidity risk. But um, anyways, if you look at the data, banks aren't really hedging, hedging away their interest rate risk. In fact, banks are sort of where we rely on interest rate risk to live. Um, that being said, we're, we're talking about interest rate risk like it's talked about in textbooks, which is this idea that, okay, if you borrow short and lend long, you're exposed to some interest rate risk in the interim. So that's exactly banks, right? You have, a, you have short-term deposits uh, and you buy long-term assets. Uh, so if, if the yield goes up on your short-term borrowing, you get squeezed on your long-term assets, which, which you know, don't change because they have a fixed interest rate. So that's true in like a hedge fundy sense. It's not really true of banks. Uh, banks hedge by basically taking care of their depositors. So uh, to the you know when, when rates go up, we don't all go change our bank accounts. Uh, you know when, when rates go up hundred basis points, we don't see any difference in our checking account. We see probably nothing in our in our savings account at that point too. Um, and we don't rush to change that necessarily because banks offer us services and, you know, we keep our money with our banker. Uh, you know, we have various payments that come out of our, our accounts and things like that. Um, you know, they have some fancy app or we're doing this and that or money management, whatever else it may be. So that's sort of banks hedge. Uh, if you maintain the deposit franchise, if you take care of your depositors, you don't get squeezed on that funding. And you don't, you're not paying out uh, purely with interest rates, right? You, you, part of the service you provide is, is non-monetary. And then you make more on the loans, on the new loans that you make. Right, exactly, exactly. Or, or you just, you write, out your, you write out your fixed yield assets. And as they mature, you put more money, like you said, into, into new loans. Um, and that's sort of the, the business of how banks hedge. Um, in my most recent piece, I sort of give an analogy of a corn producer. And you can think about if a corn producer goes out and buys a bunch of short futures contracts because they're going to sell their corn you know, into the market and they want to lock in the price. Financially speaking, they have one contract, right? They have an exposed futures position and they have a bunch of corn in the ground. I mean, they don't, they don't have any, they're not hedged from a financial perspective, but they're hedged because they have this literal product. But if they don't tend to their field, if they if they you know ignore their corn, if they ignore their production, and at the time of the maturity of the futures contract, they have a bunch of you know low quality corn they can't sell. All of a sudden, they have a huge financial position. It's the same is true of a bank, right? So you're hedged by taking care of your deposits, you know, tending to your deposit franchise. If you don't take care of it, and your depositors run or walk. Um, all of a sudden, you have a huge exposed uh, financial position on the asset side. Um, and, and so that's really the same story. So asking banks to put on hedges is really double hedging if they're taking care of their depositors. Right. And on your Substack, without warning, you write, you reference a paper uh, citing that only 6% of aggregate assets in the U.S. banking system are hedged by interest rate swaps. And that's just, just a question, what are you hedging? Are you hedging the 
securities in are you hedging the loans are you hedging both are you hedging only in the available for sale are you hedging them only in the or in, in the, the held to maturity category as well i, I think it's common bank practice uh, to explicitly not hedge held to maturity assets and you know silicon valley i think had over 200 billion in the, the held to maturity category by the way and and, and then it's so so uh, important that the notion that banks borrow short and lend long it's not really true because the banks have the, the, the option to you have the option to withdraw money from your bank uh, on a callable CD, but you, but you d- callable demand deposit, but but you don't actually like. I mean, there are there are bank deposits right now that have been there for fifty years. So the weighted average life of banks is not one day. Just because it has the option of being one day does not mean it's one day. So if bank deposits stay at the bank and pay you know, a very low amount, then the bank can have a natural hedge by, as you say, just earning the higher yields on the new loans that it makes. So the real hedge is based for banks is the assumption of like the weighted average deposit life. And then uh, that in, in combination with the deposit beta, how much banks are going to have to increase deposit costs for every 100 basis points increase in in rates uh, for the, the risk-free rate of, of treasuries. And what are those assumptions and how much does the reality differ from those assumptions? Like the notion that you know banks are hedging the, the their assets with swaps is just not accurate. If you if you look at even the large regional, even the you know, large GSIB banks, they have you know huge swap positions on, but they're not hedging their held to maturity securities or, or loan portfolio because it's held to maturity. Uh, they, they don't do that at all. Is, is what I said reasonably accurate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you can look at, like, take First Republic. Um, you know, part of the story that's being told about First Republic is, look, you know, they had this loan book and the yield is, you know, 3.7%, uh, but they had to go to the FHLB, the Federal Home Loan Bank System, they had to go to the Fed and, and borrow at 5%. You know, to the extent you lose depositors, you're going to market, you're going to the repo market, the Fed funds market, commercial paper market and paying 5%. Uh, you, you can see you don't have, you know, a profitable bank at that point. But it was bought out by J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan is not paying more than three point seven percent on its deposits. I mean, straight up. So that's the story of if if you have a bank, like if First Republic didn't have a run, it has no solvency issue. Like it, its depositors were accepting, you know, less than one percent. Uh, it was yielding three point seven percent. That's that's an that's a solid net interest margin, um, and yeah, market rates are five percent. But who's that for? I mean, that was that had, that had very little bearing on on First Republic's business. But once the run showed up, you know, you can see how the problem would w- would occur. But again, now these assets live inside J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan's not paying five percent on, on its liabilities. It has an amazing deposit franchise that yields next to nothing. Um, you know, uh, so the, the story of, of, you know, that, that this is a straightforward interest rate risk story is just not accurate. I mean, this, these aren't market funded market assets. It's a, it's, it's a deposit franchise and it's about the deposits, but that, that is part of the, uh, interest rate risk management duration. And I guess it's just sort of what, what words you're using there. Yeah, yeah, and, and the the way I think about interest rate risk with 2023 is again not I don't think this textbook definition of how you'd apply it to a hedge fund is useful. Not at all. Um, 
But the interest rate risk that existed with SVB, Signature, First Republic, all these banks that sort of got swept up, PacWest, et cetera, is really is not in the price of their liabilities. So we're talking about it like, okay, yields went to 5%. You see the problems, but that's not really what happened. Um, the, the issue is in the quantity of their liabilities. So what happened, well, I mean, what sparked this whole thing was an 8K filing by SVB. They said, look, our cash burn uh, from our depositors is way higher than we expected. And so that to me is the real interest rate risk of this story. You have uh, in SVB's case, Silicon Valley as as your depositors. In Signature's case, you know you you bet too much of the franchise on crypto. These are interest rate sensitive sectors. Um, so to me, that's the real interest rate risk here. Is you've sort of bet your senior liabilities, namely your deposit franchise, on really interest rate sensitive sectors. Um, and you could see how that story gets short circuited when the Fed goes from zero to five percent in a year. Um, it, it, it's like if you were uh, exclusively funding loans, you know, with from oil producers, and, and oil goes from 100 bucks to 20 bucks in a year, right? I mean, you, the deposits are just going to get run down, um, and you're going to get squeezed on your liability side, have to go to market, have to pay the new rates, uh, the new higher rates, um, and, and you know, the, the bank's over at that point. So, to me, that's the real interest rate risk is in the clientele, um, in the industry focus, in the regional focus. Uh, in each of these cases. And that's sort of why we saw which banks we saw get get really squeezed and put under pressure by this. Um, you know, Citigroup had $30 billion of unrealized losses, but they're never going to realize that because they have a deposit franchise. Though that marking to market is, is based on market rates that they're not going to pay. Um, so it's just a different story. And, and to me, that's the real interest rate risk is on the quantity of liabilities more than more than the price. Absolutely, bank. You said Citigroup had thirty billion. I think Bank of America has over a hundred billion of uh, unrealized losses on their securities book for held to maturity, and you know they they make so much money just on paying their depositors zero for the case of individual depositors, and then you know making loans at, at higher things that they can they can afford that. And uh, I mean, if Bank of America goes down, we're gonna have uh, you know we're gonna, we're gonna be talking a lot, Stephen. Um, right, right, and and that's I mean that was another piece. To that, be clear, obviously, that, I don't think that's going to happen. But yeah. right, right, that was always in the background uh, of this story. Is if you want to worry about basically unrealized losses on treasury securities taking down the system, you have to tell a story where the Fed doesn't cut interest rates as we start to worry about the Bank of Americas and J.P. Morgan's of the world. Because if you have a if you have a crisis, if you have a systemic financial crisis because treasury securities are yielding too much. I mean, the Fed has to literally be asleep. Uh, you can cut rates, recapitalize the whole system. Obviously, the Fed doesn't want to do that while inflation is still high. But if you're living in a world where Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citigroup, where these banks are in trouble because of unrealized losses uh, on Treasury security or on all securities just because of the Fed's rate, you know, if it's not credit risk, it's just about rates, uh, the Fed has a nuclear option. Um, and if you're worried about those big banks, inflation is not is no longer a concern um, when you're when you're looking down the barrel of a financial crisis. So that was always sort of in the background of this. Uh, SVB wasn't important enough in itself, but if you're talking about the system going down, uh, the Fed's going to cut interest rates. And in a, in this situation where it was the losses were so driven by just interest rates, it wasn't toxic, uncertain credit assets, whatever. 
Um, the Fed has a really easy solution to that that it did not have in the GFC and COVID um, to just cut the Fed funds rate. Sorry to interrupt. Wanted to let you know about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are going to be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE20. That's GUIDANCE20. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. If there's no bank run, and really if deposits aren't leaving the bank at all, let's say the large bank, JP Morgan, which by the way, JP Morgan did an exquisite job of, quote, hedging their interest rate risk. And the reason they, how they hedged that is by not taking a lot of interest rate risk in the first place, uh, not by buying agency mortgage-backed securities and then entering in some huge swap position. They, I think the, the duration of their held maturity securities was you know, a lot, a lot, quite low, definitely single digits. Anyway, um, is there any way you see unrealized losses at large banks becoming a problem in the absence of bank runs from them? And obviously, this is a telltale risk scenario. Yeah, I, I really don't. And, you know, I think it's important to remember, too, that really it wasn't a problem for the banks that failed until we saw this deposit attrition. So, um, you know, I, I've sort of been been you know, yelling till I'm blue in the face that that the story that it's unrealized bond losses that set off SVB, it, it's just not true. It, it, it's a classic thing that happens in bank crises where you have a crisis and you go back and look at the balance sheet and you go, what went wrong? And that's if that's not what happened in real time, that's not what you can do ex post. Um, and, you know, the reason I say that is SVB was reporting these bond losses very publicly for quarters and quarters. And the loss was actually falling, um, and you know how, the how is the loss falling? As well, so be, between bet the 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 loss on their bond portfolio peaked in Q three uh, of 2022, and it was actually lower in in Q one or sorry in Q four of 2022, which they reported in February uh, of this year. And after that, their stock traded at 280 bucks um, for weeks and weeks. So the the idea there is like. Okay, in theory, well, not in theory, equity investors have for sure read the 10K. Um, you know, they're valuing this bank at 280 bucks a share. And it's not until SVB goes out secretly and says, look, we need to raise capital. We need to sell these assets. We're, we're, we're getting way bigger runoff on the deposit side than we've expected, than we've previously forecast, that suddenly, you know, there's, there's a problem in, in – nobody wants to recapitalize the business at that point stock price goes to zero. Um, that's an important part of the story is, can you recapitalize the business? So we can talk about like, you know, losses at Bank of America, for instance. Let, let's, you know, let's say the losses at Bank of America were even bigger. Let's say they were the exact size of their equity, which is roughly, you know, how, what the situation is SVB. Someone's going to come along and capitalize Bank of America, right? That's a great business um, they'll, they'll get some capital from, from Warren Buffett or from somebody who wants to come along and equitize the business. Uh, the same, again, this would be very bad for the stock price. I mean, I think it's what happened to, to Citigroup in 2008, 2009. Uh, if you have to, the time at which you need equity funding is when your stock price is in the tank. 
And sure. so you really don't have a lot of control. So very bad for stockholders, but you're, you know, you're minding of your title. You're at the Yale financial uh, program for financial stability. You're thinking about financial stability, not equity investors in stocks. Right, right. So it, yeah, that's exactly right, Jack. I mean, the, the 2008 story, I mean, Warren Buffett comes along and makes an investment in Goldman. And, and yeah, like stockholders are not making out great at that time, but the business survives and, you know, that's a huge endorsement. Um, and you can look at the same story with Credit Suisse, right? It, Credit Suisse is, is basically, you know, dragging along its stock price, four bucks, three bucks, whatever, for months and months from October um, until it fails ultimately in March. And what sets off the final, you know, what's the final death knell in March? Well, its biggest shareholder, the last one who was putting capital in, goes on the news and says absolutely not when asked if he would put in more, if he would ever put in more capital in Credit Suisse. And like that, the, the business goes away. Um, so, you know, it kind of goes back to our discussion of capital. If you have no one willing to equitize the business, um, to put in new capital, uh, the, the, you know, no one wants to do business with the bank and the bank is over. And, and that's really the story of SVB. And then you look, you know, you can draw the line from SVB to banks that had similar problems on the liability side, namely Signature um, and then First Republic, which had a lot of the same clientele as SVB. And then you start to worry about PacWest, all these other West Coast banks. Um, but Signature had, had next to nothing with respect to unrealized losses. Um, so you, you really can't just tell the story of looking at the balance sheet after the fact and going, oh, it was these unrealized losses, which were bad, but they were widely known. But the, the business still looks solid. Um, and if the business is still solid, you can raise new equity. Um, and it wasn't until SVB came out and said, look, our business is worse than we expected that the crisis gets set off. And then, and then investors go, OK, what other businesses are worse than we expected? Well, Signature has a big crypto book. That's probably, you know, that's been running off since FTX. First Republic has a lot of the same clients, you know, Silicon Valley. Um, that's not good in a world where the Fed takes interest rates to 5%. And that's sort of the crisis that we saw, which really never spread to Wall Street. Um, we were never talking about Morgan Stanley, Goldman, JP Morgan. You know, we just never were. It was never that feeling of we're worried that one of these banks is going to go down. Right. Uh, the Silicon Valley Bank's huge unrealized losses did not directly cause its failure. The bank run on Silicon Valley Bank directly caused its failure. However, I would say that the uh, bank run was caused, I think it was a Wednesday when Goldman Sachs, its advisor, put out a thing. We're trying to raise new equity because we have all these you know, losses. And then that's when the, the fear uh, set Yeah, in. so it, it was new equity because they're facing this cash burn. I mean, so they were selling, they were going to sell their portfolio, you know, their available for sale portfolio. They're going to raise new equity. And this was prompted by, you know, higher than basically a runoff in their liabilities um, and sort of, you know, the need for new funding. And you're right. I mean, the, the unrealized bond losses don't help. If they were sitting on a $100 billion gain, you know, a $20 billion gain instead of a $18 billion loss, whatever, $17 billion, uh, you know, equity investors might have been more enticed. You have, you have a slightly better looking balance sheet. But again, it's, you know, do you want to be the marginal equity investor in a bank that's, you know, exclusively banking Silicon Valley in a world where Fed is taking straight to 6%, um, cash is running down. The the payoff um, in this bank, you know, the, sort of the cash inflows to this bank are based on new rounds of venture funding. And that- all the, not all, but a lot of the companies who are venture funded 
because they're early companies are not profitable companies. So they have a natural yeah, burn rate. So the money is going down unless there are new inflows, which inflow, inflows were very uh, hard to come by. Right. I mean, they're dependent on the equity market. I mean, this is venture equity and new inflows were based on, you know, equity investors putting in new money. And, you know, if you tie the health uh, of a bank's deposits to the equity market, you can see how they're the first to go uh, when, when rates start moving up. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know they had sold a lot of their available for sale securities at a loss. I may speculate now, and I, I can go up and check that they did that to raise cash so that they could, uh, you know, re- replace their cash. But as they sold that at a loss, they realized those losses, so they that was uh, damaged their capital, which which maybe that's why. But Steve, so that's a great transition to this new potential regulation. I think for banks, a hundred billion and above, it would require them to r- include available for sale losses in capital, mm-hmm. uh, not held to maturity, interestingly, but mm-hmm. available for sale uh, in losses. And my question for you is, uh, is, isn't is it really all about the deposits? I mean, you said, let's say that Bank of America's equity was entirely wiped out by the unrealized losses on their securities books. The reality is that it would be wiped out in reality, but in accounting land, uh, held to maturity doesn't matter at all, right? Isn't it true that even for the largest banks, uh, the GSIBs, held to maturity losses don't matter for bank capital, and that's why Silicon Valley Bank could put out a chart saying that you know their capital ratio, and it's in the the uh, Fed Bar's uh, report, which I think came out in May, uh, you know, well at the at the end of the report, and we we could put it on screen that they were in compliance with capital uh, laws. You're exactly right, Jack. I mean the the way we do capital ratios now is really um, like we were discussing before, it's it's uh, how much capital do you have against risk-weighted assets or assets in general? It's not, uh, let's think about your business model and is it sustainable in this environment? Or let's think about your governance. If we want to talk about Credit Suisse, like, uh, you know, problem after problem after problem in the headlines, does that force the bank to raise more capital? No, it's capital ratios look great. Um, it's liquidity ratios look great. Um, its capital ratios were more or less identical to UBS's. I mean, that should tell you how, how you know how not fully informative these capital ratios are, and it it really can't be fully offset with the accounting. Um, certainly, in the case in in the cases we saw, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, the whole banking system has unrealized losses unavailable for sale securities. So if if you um, make the banks who have currently opted out, you know, they were given sort of an opt-out option from available available for sale, securities, gains and losses, including that in their regulatory capital. It's still in their gap capital, but in their regulatory capital, that some were, were allowed to opt out, um, which, you know, has its downsides when you have a bunch of gains because um, you don't get to include it in your capital, but it has its upsides when you have a bunch of losses because you don't have to include those losses in your capital. So certainly if we said you have to include that, um, that makes the banking system, you know, better capitalized at the margin. Um, and yeah, we can, uh, there's been a lot of discussion now too of, well, let's include held to maturity securities and let's make them hold regulatory capital against that. And so, I mean, there's two things, cause like, like you said, held to maturity capital is not even included in, in gap accounting. Uh, th- those gains and loss, the unrealized losses are not even included in, in gap accounting. Banks can totally ignore them. So you go fine. 
but why? Because you look at a crisis and you look at SVB's case and you go, how the heck are they allowed to just exclude you know, $17 million from, from, their, from their capital? Like what an accounting fiction, right? But it goes back to that discussion we had before of let's say your Citigroup, why should you have to include those unrealized losses, which are based on marking your assets to essentially the treasury yield curve, you know, marking them to 5% yields when you're paying 1%. Shouldn't you have to mark them to your deposit curve or not at all? Um, so that's, that's again, the question of like the accounting that made sense for SVB, obviously in hindsight, like, okay, they should have had way more capital SVB because they were running this really risky business that was really sensitive to interest rates and the tech economy, you know, um, wouldn't have made sense for Bank of America because of exactly what we were saying before. They're still paying zero. Why should they have to mark their assets to 5% and include that all in their capital? Do we really want Bank of America to go out and raise, you know, uh, $10 billion, $20 billion in more capital just because of accounting losses? Well, see, so they, they could include the losses on the unrealized securities in the held to maturity portfolio, but then also book a gain on the spread between their uh, deposit costs and the risk-free rate. In other words, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like the, with the fact that, that their net interest income increases, they could say, oh, actually our equity is worth more or we're booking this gain because we're making so much money in the future. Yeah, so it, it becomes a question of how do you mark the assets to market? Because right now we go, okay, you have an observable treasury price. So let's say you're Bank of America, you have some treasury, you know, you, you have a 20% loss. Um, that's observable on the Bloomberg screen and that's what you have to report. Um, so yes, we're saying here like, okay, but really they're not paying, you know, they're not paying the 5%. So that's what's, that's what's gets so wonky about this is if you want them to mark their assets to market, the marking really comes from assuming a 5% yield. I mean, that's, what's baked into the hundred dollar treasury. That's, that's paying it. That's cost 80 bucks is a, an assumed cost of funds over time. And what we're saying here now is banks don't really have that assumed cost. So it makes sense to not, you know, not have make force banks to raise capital um, to support a bunch of held to maturity assets. Um, so it comes back to, again, I, I, something that certainly can be done is they can do better about what's exactly held to maturity and what's not. So you can look back and the, the, the CEO of SVB was literally in the Financial Times in like February. So before they were you know, really in trouble saying, oh, you know, we're not worried about our unrealized losses and we have all these held to maturity securities that we can repo if we need to. And okay, it's like, is that really held to maturity if you have to take them to market and borrow against them, uh, which again would be at that 5% rate, you know, you're sort of realizing that interest rate risk. Um, if you're running out of deposits and having to go borrow against them at the Fed, is that really held to maturity? I mean, technically you're holding them, but you're getting squeezed on your interest rates. Um, so we can probably do better at those classifications. Uh, but you know, just forcing, forcing it all through the same accounting lens is not going to solve the problem. And investors will just ignore it most of the time, because if you're reading Citigroup's 10 K, it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense for you to read through that far. Right. And tell us about how much money has been leaving the banking system. Where has it been going? Just, just to money market funds. And then at what point does that become an issue? And also, can you talk about, is it going, leaving from the small banks, going to the large banks and stuff like that? Yeah. So what we've seen is basically, I mean, deposit attrition across the board since the Fed has really started tightening policy in 2022. Um, and this makes sense mechanically 
for a few reasons. I mean, the Fed is literally destroying reserves with QT, um, you know, letting letting its portfolio run off. Um, you know, banks are, are are letting loans basically mature. And like we talked about, you, you know, you sort of destroy the deposit when you destroy the loan balance. Um, and so we, we sort of saw a general downward trend across banks uh, that basically sharpened in March. And in, in those in those fateful couple of weeks, we saw certain inflows into the largest banks. We kind of sort of saw flatness among community banks and obviously sharp withdrawals in sort of that mid-tier banks. And we could talk about, you know, exactly that system. There's been a lot of commentary from the Fed and others lately about this sort of bar idea of a barbell banking system. We can talk about that. Um, but really, we we sort of can seen a seen a continued march down in deposits, and uh, it, it's sort of awkward, right? Because we it was only a couple of years ago we were talking about banks having too many deposits, um, and it goes back to this issue of of deposits basically creating leverage for banks. And so during COVID, a lot of banks were pushing depositors away and said, look, go, we, like, we, we offer money market funds. Why don't you go buy one of those? We don't have a use for your deposit. And it, and it cranks on our leverage ratio in a way we, that we don't want right now. Uh, so uh, we, we've sort of seen that natural attrition. So point is, some of the deposits have just straight up disappeared. Some of it have, has been transfers into money market funds as yields have gone up. Um, Particularly when when there was concerns over the safety of certain banks uh, in March, you know you sort of see a, a, sharp, a sharp strike, uh, a, a sharp jump, hundred you know a few hundred billion dollars in money market funds, um, and so importantly, a lot of that money can find its way back to the banking system, um, you know via repo via money market funds investing in repos, commercial paper. But again, you've taken a what was a deposit. And turned it into a repo or commercial paper at five percent. Um, so things got a lot more fragile when that happened in March, and some of the money can leave the banking system by going to the Fed. And this is a new thing. I mean, historically speaking, this is new. The reverse repo facility, money market funds um, can take over hundred billion dollars there every day. Uh, and we're talking about each fund, um, and so really, funds can exit the banking system. This was not the case. You know, as recently as a few years ago, um, and for a while, the reverse repo was a, was a real had a had a cap on it of of smaller, much smaller amounts. The Fed has raised and raised and raised. Um, I think it's 160 billion right now. Um, but point being, th- these are actually funds that can leave the banking system in a way they couldn't. You know, usually reserves are going somewhere among banks, um, and now they can really park at the Fed. Uh, and so, we'll, th- th- this has been you know making people nervous. That to the extent you can take reserves out of the banking system, um, you know, there's a risk that they're not in the right place at the right time and someone needs to make a payment and they don't have the money or they need to meet a collateral call. Um, but I, I think that's a big question mark right now of it's one, how much more deposit attrition can banks take? Um, the levels seem to be leveling out a little bit. Um, and two, how low can reserve can Fed reserves in the banking system go? Um you know, netting out what's sitting at the Fed at the reverse repo facility. Right. So the reverse repo facility, uh, it's now, quote, only $1.8 trillion, and it's down uh, about $300 billion uh, just over the past month or so. 
So how, or you know, 400 billion, how uh, do you think the decline in the reverse repo facility is, is that money going back into the banking system, the, the bank reserves? Yeah, so th- this was certainly making people nervous because there was a there's been a sort of a rebuild of the Treasury's checking account um, post debt ceiling. Um, you know that being resolved, the Fed or the Treasury has sort of rebuilt its its checking account at the Fed. So to some extent, this is not really in the banking system yet. It's sort of been a transfer from the reverse repo facility to the Treasury. Um, but it was making people nervous that this money was going to come out of the banking system as opposed to the reverse repo facility. And you'd get, you know, imagine that $400 billion came out of banks and went to treasury instead of out of the Fed's reverse repo facility, went to treasury. And then you start worrying about, okay, is there enough liquidity? Is it in the right place at the right time? Um, So far, you know, I think people are more relaxed seeing it come out of the reverse repo facility, which is essentially dead money. You know, it's just, it's just an amount that sits at the Fed. Um, The Fed is taking that out of the banking system every night. Um, so it was sort of weird when the Fed was still doing QE because they sort of are pumping in reserves at one side and, and sucking them up at the short end. Um, and just in terms of the language, the Fed is not taking money out of the banking system. People, customers, businesses are withdrawing money from the banking system and putting it into money market funds, which own treasuries, but also invest in the reverse repo facility at the Fed. So it's, it's the, Fed, the Federal Reserve is not doing it you know, willfully. It's just kind of hap- happening because people are doing it. Right. They're not choosing the amount in the way they choose the amount for QE and QT, right? They say $95 billion a month or whatever. The Fed is not doing that, but they are incentivizing it with you know, an interest rate and they're raising the limits, which have effectively not been a limit. You know, They used to be $5 billion and $30 billion. You know, now it's $160 billion. Um, so, and that's, again, that's by fund. So if you're Fidelity, you have a million money market funds that can go to the Fed. Um, so yeah, they, they, they are allowing it more so than than choosing that number, like you said. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Stephen, if we could zoom out, how would you assess the health of the U.S. banking system? I mean, what are the odds that another Silicon Valley bank thing happens? What are the odds that you know this is a horrible cascade of uh, you know, really nasty insolvencies? And what are the odds that uh, sort of you know nothing really bad happens at all? Maybe a few minor bank failures, but uh, you know it's it's all clear. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, first principles are things are stable now, but more fragile than in February, and part of it goes back to. You know, banks are paying up a little bit for deposits. They've lost a little bit more on the deposit side. Um, you know, they're, they're using more market-based funding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and there's questions about the economy. I mean, that's another thing that really holds the banking system up is the economy has still been really strong, really low unemployment. Um, 
Low so, credit losses. Right. So as that sort of softens, you know, there's a lot of concern now over commercial real estate. Uh, and, and, you know, we can think about how that works its way through the banking system. But th- that's sort of the starting place of where we are. I would say the most the most likely risk, again, this is not like base case, but most likely risk is really sort of more in this credit crunchy space of, you know, we're going to have smaller banks that really do get squeezed on interest rates um, and maybe close, you know, maybe we see more bank closures sort of at the small end and, you know, less access to credit at, at the margin. We see commercial real estate really squeeze some banks and, to me, you know, the risk here is really more of a monetary policy issue. Like it's it's just, it's hard to solve that with a financial stability intervention um, with, you know, with a, with a rent, you know, the way the Fed goes into the corporate bond market or something is different than how it could sort of solve a commercial real estate sort of slow burn, right? Um, so to me, that's sort of the main risk. Uh, but again, that that's, there's just not that line of contagion to the core of the system. And you know, this is another thing that's gotten a lot of airtime post March. Basically, is we have a lot of banks in the U.S., and it's not clear we need all of them. Um, almost five thousand banks, almost five thousand credit unions. If we lose some, you know, it, it's not clear we that writes the crisis story. Um, so again, we we continue to see really no line of contagion to the core of the system, which I think is most important. But yeah, we we could see more closures uh, of small banks. Um, you know, in the interim. And of course, something can always blow up that, that we don't see, you know, somebody can always file an emergency 8K or whatever. Um, but I think this is probably more going to more likely going to be a monetary policy issue where the Fed has to think about what's it going to do to cut rates to respond to commercial real estate or, or, or sort of general credit crunchiness versus uh, financial stability crisis. And do you think the Federal Reserve will cut interest rates in, in order yeah, to? They, yeah, I think they need to start being more clear about this because they, they really have talked about, you know, what they Fire call like separation principle um, that like we have the tools to, to respond to financial stability fires as they come up in our tightening cycle. And that's true. And, you know, if, if we get a hedge fund blow up or something, they can certainly do that. And they did that in March responding to the banks. Um but like I said, it, it's a little tougher when you're talking about the complicated and you know heterogeneous world of commercial real estate, and you're talking about a lot of small banks at once. At a certain point, this becomes a monetary policy issue, and they need to think about how they would be cutting rates in response to a cr- what manifests as a credit crunch, as opposed to you know a financial crisis. Um, so they definitely need to start thinking about. I mean, they are thinking about it. They, they may need to start talking about it more and. And clarify when, you know, some of these more credit side risks become a monetary policy issue. How would cutting rates help banks with commercial real estate exposure to commercial real estate loans that are defaulting or gone, people not paying back? If people aren't going to pay you back, you know, it doesn't matter what interest rates are. You're not gonna yeah, pay I back. mean, that's exactly right. The moment it becomes a, a, a toxic asset, the Fed's too late. I mean, to the extent that they can cut rates and ease people's repayment burden, ease valuations in the credit real estate uh, or the, yeah, the commercial real estate market, you know, that's helpful, but exactly to your point, once you're in the 2008 scenario, uh, cutting interest rates is not going to do you any good on subprime. Once you're in COVID cutting interest rates doesn't do you any good. Um, 
so it, it, and it's a hard market to intervene in, you know, the way the Fed does, which is which is kind of why I made that earlier point. It's it's hard for the Fed to go, you know, they can't really go up and buy up commercial real estate. Um, you know, they they have facilities in the past that have sort of tried to include commercial real estate to very limited success, and you still sort of involve private balance sheets, and so it, it's a difficult thing to come in too late to. But again, it, it's just not tied to money markets in the way it was in 2008. I mean, so much of the real estate story of 2008 wasn't just house prices go down. It was, okay, house prices go down. And now all of a sudden we're worried about the entire repo market and, you know, the entire, you know, the entire commercial paper market, asset backed commercial paper market, and then you get the bank blowups. Um, and that story really, really isn't there at this point. So again, that's why it's more of a slow moving credit crunch type, type risk than, than an overnight financial crisis risk. You're saying in 2007, 2008, banks were funding themselves by securitizing uh, toxic subprime loans and uh, using that as collateral to obtain loans. And then when the integrity of those loans was questioned, that drew upon their, their funding risks. You're saying with commercial real estate, that is not the case. Banks are not uh, using commercial real estate to fund themselves. Is, is that true? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's some cases where banks have, you know, secured loan, you know, secured credit against commercial real estate loans, but it, it's just, I mean, well, for one, the, the asset backed commercial paper market really doesn't exist in the way it did before. Um, but yeah, you don't see like this sort of triple a, um, you know, private, private credit stuff backing money markets basically. And so it, it's harder to draw a line until you have a bank failure, it's hard to draw a line from commercial real estate to money markets. Um, so, you know, whereas in, in past episodes, the story was commercial real estate, money markets, bank failure. Now you'd have to go, to, you know, get a bank failure from commercial real estate and then draw the line to money markets. Um, and, you know, is Bank of America going to fail because of their commercial real estate portfolio? No. Um, it's very small, I think. Yeah, right. right. The office. Yeah, so uh, in three days, I think the big banks start reporting their earnings. What are you going to have your eye on? So I'll have my eye on discussion of deposit costs um, because there there really has been you know two parts to the story. And we, we've sort of minimized the second part um, to some degree in this conversation, and I think usefully. But um, part of it is like you start hiking rates – five percent and more like there is some consumer awareness and you know deposits aren't infinitely sticky uh like you said if rates go to ten percent that that deposit franchise is, is even harder to maintain you have to have good enough like if you want to keep rates at zero which deposits don't need to but you've got to have 10 percentage points worth of good service on your deposits i mean that that is really good service that's more than a free toaster when you open the account right um so, you know, there is sort of a, a second phase to this crisis, which is, you know, increased awareness among depositors of, of higher rate options. And so I'll be watching, you know, for banks to really talk about that, um, as well as any color we can get on mergers and, and how strong the appetite is, uh, particularly among GSIBs and what they're hearing on mergers, because, um, you know, mergers are really stabilizing during financial instability, but they're also really unpopular because the big banks get bigger. And so there's sort of been mixed signals out of DC. And I'm sure analysts will be asking the CEOs on the calls, you know, what do you like out there? Are you looking at possible acquisitions? And I'll be interested to hear responses to that. So real quick, two things I don't think we've mentioned yet, or only briefly, is that this will also require some banks to issue 
more long-term debt, uh, debt that can absorb losses and you know, reduce the cost of the FDIC in potential bank failures. And then also they talk about the Basel III endgame. So what, what is the Basel III endgame? So Basel III endgame is really um, a continuation of Basel III, which was like the post-2008 um, international accord basically for bank regulation. So they're calling it Basel III endgame because pieces of it still have not been implemented um, internationally, the details were worked out in like 2017. Um, so, you know, you, you can build in a couple legs there. Uh, but this is really, again, goes back to some of that stuff I said earlier about, you know, standardization and how banks are allowed to use, to use model risk. Um, when it comes to this issuance of long-term debt, uh, yeah, I, I, th- this is something that the bank regulators in the U.S. have the current, you know, the current crop has been interested in. Um, I'm not super convinced of its utility relative to equity. Uh, you know, to me, it's sometimes can appear like a little too clever by half. Um, it's sort of a way to trick bond investors into buying equity, uh, to a certain extent, but it, it, and, and it's, it's just hard to bail because like equity, you don't have to actually bail in. Like when there's a crisis, you don't have to say, okay, we're writing the equity down. The equity just goes down. Um, and so there's all sorts of contagion that can happen when you say, okay, we're going to write these bonds down or we're going to convert them to equity holders. Um, you know, Credit Suisse was its own kind of mess, but obviously yeah. there was, you know, a sort of a brouhaha over, over their credit, credit write downs. Um, not, not, not to mention, Stephen, what if that uh, long-term debt was of rated investment grade, uh, as is frequently the case, and it's, uh, was part of a you know junk, uh, investment grade ETF that pension funds hold it. You can see the contagion kind of spiraling. Right, right, and, and that's exactly right. And and you know we saw a little bit of debt get written off in the SVB and First Republic and signature cases. But there's a question of what happens if we had you know if we had asked them to raise a bunch more debt that was bail inable, um, that would have been good you know quote unquote good. But also then it's like okay if you're talking about a significant chunk of debt, is that is there more contagion there? Um, what does that portend for other banks? Because you, you'll see the spreads go up and then they got their own set of problems that they might not have had before. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Um, bank equity is scarce. So I get the, I get the incentive to try to try to source bail inable capital where you can. Um, but to a certain extent, sometimes you just need more equity. It's just more straightforward. Final question, Stephen, at what point of at what level of interest rates does financial stability begin to become threatened? Right now, we're at five point two five percent on the on the upper range. Is it six percent? Is it seven percent? Is it eight percent? Is there some point in the future where actually the current rate five point two five percent poses a risk, and actually the Fed needs to cut? Part of the story, right, is how's the economy doing? So interest rates don't exist in a vacuum. So where is the interest rate relative to the economy? And again, you know, there's there's a difference between what you can call like a credit crunch or you know a recession versus a financial crisis, and you know maybe rates can go to fifteen percent and not have a financial crisis. I don't know. I you know w- we didn't really see five percent triggering SVB because again there was all these other factors at play uh, specific to its business model. Um, so again, you know something can come up overnight where all of a sudden you need the systemic risk exception and the Fed and the FDIC, the Treasury, like we, like happened in March. But then you look at since then and things are calm and rates are still going up, right? So um, something can sort of come out of the shadows, but also 
the economy strong and and that I mean that really can't be overstated how beneficial that is relative to interest rates. So if the economy weakens and the Fed keeps rates at six percent, you know things are going to get more and more fragile. Um, and again, that's where it becomes a monetary policy issue. Got it. What what if the economy remains gangbusters, credit losses you know remain near zero, or for risky stuff like autos and credit cards, you know they remain within the models and you know lower than twenty nineteen for example. Uh, what how high can the Fed go? Is there some point at which the funding costs and the interest rate risk within the banking system, that itself uh, is a risk. And it's not just a bad economy and, and credit losses. We'd have to see, we'd have to see some sort of precipitating event um, like we saw in March or, or a massive change in depositor behavior. Like I said, you take rates to 10%, people aren't going to be as happy with 0%. Maybe they, maybe they live with it at 3%, but when it goes to 10%, you start looking around. Um, so again, I, I can't give you a, I can't give you a fixed number, um, but certainly things always get more fragile the longer and higher rates go. Um, you know, you sort of see what structures got built around that earlier world, and and you see how sustainable they are. Got it. Well, Stephen, people can follow you on Twitter at Stephen Kelly forty nine. Uh, your Substack without warning com, and uh, tell us about the the work that you do at the Yale Program of, of on Financial Stability and. Yeah, what's are you? Is there kind of a, a next project that, that you're working on that you're excited about, as well as perhaps you know, what's the next piece uh, on the Without Warning Substack going to be about? Uh, so I don't know what the next piece on Without Warning is going to be. Uh, part of the re- the, the the name has uh, two sort of two genesis. Uh, one is that I never know when I'm going to write something again, so I don't have like a once a week, you know, twice a week. I, I, it could be five times a month. It could be zero times a month. Um, and the other, the other sort of reason for the name is that, um, I don't really write like intro type pair. Like I don't say, Oh, in, in March, 2020 COVID, you know, have, there's enough of that in, in more formal writing. So I sort of spare the reader. Um, you know, it's really targeted at, at a, uh, at a, you know, financially aware audience. Um, so I sort of skip the intros and, and get right into the meat of it. Um, if there's, the no, there's next, no third meeting of, of financial crises strike without warning? No, there's not actually, oh, wow. but it does, it does kind of sound like that. So that was kind of the other reason I was just like, it, it sounds like financial risky. Um, so it kind of fits. Um, there's also a few hip hop references and I'm a big fan. So that it sort of fits in there too. Um, uh, at the Yale program on financial stability, we are sort of uniquely focused on fighting financial crises. So we're sort of built on the delightful premise that um, prevention is going to fail. Uh, at some point, and and it it pays to have a non political body that can really focus on what are the tools when a financial crisis is already here. Um, so we have something called the New Badget Project, which is our main output, um, named for Walter Badget, who has the original Badget dictum, you know, lend freely at a penalty rate against good collateral, um, and that's a, a, a great story and it's still accurate, but it, it doesn't really tell you how to end a crisis. Um, and it, it's it's rarely enough, as we saw, you know, just recently with the Credit Suisse, you could put uh, two hundred billion dollars in the window, and you still sort of bleed clients and, and funding. Um, so we have a, we have an online platform of of historical interventions and what worked and what didn't. Um, that that's sort of our main, you know, uh, public output. We have a huge database of financial crisis resources, past interviews we've done, um, and so. Uh, we're we're always working on that. We're working. We're doing a lot of stuff, policy stuff on 2023 these days. Um, and so, you know, we're we're 
we're trying to, uh, you know, really make sure we're ready and hopefully can avoid this systemic risk exception next time around um, and, and focus on, on how we fight these things when they, when they show up without warning, I guess. <laughs> there we go. Steven, thanks so much for joining us, sharing your insights, and thanks everyone for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.